You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Angie, this was one of the more interesting things I learned really thinking about dingoes. What can they teach us? Well, Chris, I think most people can probably relate to just their behavioral patterns and expressions and movements just because of our furry friends that live with us, the domestic version of the dog. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. So we're revisiting gray wolves again? Close. Uh, maybe <laughs> the wolves of Down Under? Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. Uh, Aussie's dingoes. So mm-hmm. that call, I mean, that, that is very close to what wolves do. And dogs howl too. So, so we're going to find out today if they're more closely related to wolves. Or are they cl- cl- more closely related to domestic dogs? Oh, yeah, Chris. We're going to find out so much fun stuff about dingoes. What a cool species to cover. I had a lot of fun prepping this week, learning all about dingoes. And I mean, they're like, they are like our beloved medium sized dog. In fact, my rainbow is tan color. And I just told John tonight, I was like, we should have named her Dingo because she's oh, tan. Oh, cool. Yeah, that would have yeah. been a great name. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, but hopefully throughout this episode, we'll answer a lot of questions about dingoes. They're, I mean, their personalities, their behavior are just incredible. Their history and their evolution. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. I know, you went down a lot of rabbit holes with that. It's just really, really fascinating. And dingoes, similar to wolves here in the U.S., are beloved by many, but also considered a pest by some. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll be talking a lot today and... Uh, this is just going to be a, a really fun podcast. It is. It is. They were they were a lot of fun to do uh, hours of research on. I mean, just a very unique canid. I'm not done yet, to be honest. I have a, 
have a couple articles I didn't have time to read, and I'm like, ooh, I gotta read that. So maybe we'll do maybe we'll do a bonus episode for our Patreon uh, listeners and supporters. But yeah, yeah it's yeah, just yeah. just so much fun material out there. I mean, who doesn't love a good canid podcast, right? Oh, you gotta love you gotta love them. You gotta love them because you know harkens back to our own pets. You know Arlo, my good old Arlo with Pippa, and that leads me into just giving some shout outs to Chantel and Dave in Melbourne, Lee and Sydney. You know, thank you for being supporters. We have a lot of support to, you know down there over over next to me across the Tasman Sea in Australia. And as soon as those borders open, I'm going to be coming over and visiting with you guys. And I really have to dedicate this episode to somebody that's that's just so near and dear to my heart, Angie. And that's my partner, Pippa, who is stuck in the UK. Uh, I know Angie and I don't share a lot of our personal stuff in this podcast because it's more about the what animals. What are you talking about? I've pretty much given <laughs> blow by blow of all three of my births. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they did. Okay, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I know Pip and I, uh, you know, we're engaged. We've we've been together for, you know, two years now. And uh, I was with her last year in the UK for quite a bit until I had to get back down here to New Zealand to get to the boys and I, and I couldn't bring her with me. And so we've been separated. It's been very brutally hard. We've tried everything to try to get her in, but until these borders soften, you know, we've, we've had to just date long distance and it's been very tough, but she's been amazing. She's supported me through all of this, through the move here, uh, transitioning here down, down under, I'm down under in New Zealand. Uh, and I just, you know, I just want to dedicate this episode to her because she really loves dingoes. She's asked me personally to do this episode. You know, she's the love of my life. So I just want to say thanks, Pip. And she has a really cool Corumban wildlife sanctuary story that I'm going to talk about here a little bit later when we get about behavior. Uh, that's why she's like, I love dingoes. Yes. Thank you, Pip. We love you. Thanks for all you do for us on the podcast. Yeah, she does. She promotes us all the time and she's, she's one of our biggest supporters and she does a lot of her spiritual uh, work online. And you can always check her out on Instagram, Mother Earth Healer Pippa. If, you, if you're, if you're in a, into that spirituality, she, she's really great. Just awesome energy. Uh, I'm so blessed to have her in my life. So thanks, babe. And thanks to our Patreon supporters. That was a good roll in, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks for supporting us you know it's it, we have the blue boobies up there the blue-footed boobies blue boobies same thing blue-footed boobies up there for them angie and i once angie catches her breath from teaching because she just started the semester uh, we're gonna go do some zoom lives with with them and and we've got some stuff in the works so but thank you so much it, it helps pay the bills helps us promote and keep growing this podcast so thank you And thank you to those that have left us a five-star review on iTunes. If you haven't done that yet, please hop over there and uh, tell us what you think. Give us five stars and request a species for us to cover. We definitely take note of what what people would like to hear more about. So uh, please visit us. Yeah, we just got an email from Joey Gibson, in, I believe in the Philippines, looking at that one on a species that we'll be covering here pretty soon. So so we do take those into consideration. And then also Rachel De Silva, who, if you go look at our website, she's doing an amazing job with her write-ups. So she gave us a couple good uh, recommendations for next month for Spooky October. But let's get on the dingo, describing it. It's a dog, but it's not, it's so unique. I mean, it's, it's because they're pretty uniform as we'll find out why in, in their evolutionary history in their looks, right? Like, well, yeah, Chris, they have a pretty iconic look 
of being this medium-sized, about 40 to 50-pound dog, usually tan or ginger-colored, uh, with often with white points uh, either on their front and back legs and even on their face sometimes, maybe a little bit on their chest. And their body is lean, but yet hardy. They're built for speed and agility and, of course, stamina to live in the outback, right? And dingoes are built lean, um, but yet they have a very durable body. They're adapted for speed and agility and, of course, stamina to be able to hang out in the outback. It's not, it's not for the, the faint-hearted, that's for sure. Uh, and their tail is fluffy, but not uh, as bushy, I guess, is better than I would say fluffy. And their ears are pricked or like pointed if you think of something like a, a husky or a German shepherd. But what I learned this week is, although when I think of dingo, I think of this ginger tan color, beautiful blonde, if you will, sometimes with red highlights, there's actually lots of different colors of dingoes. Mm-hmm. And the main and the three main coat coloration patterns are, like I said, that ginger, but then also black and tan and then creamy white. So a lot of it depends on what region of Australia or up into Southeast Asia where they live. Um, In fact, in Southeast Asia, there's certain individuals that are pure black. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So it really does depend, but primarily it's going to be that tan color. And I mean, just almost look like a, a, a small lab Husky cross that was pretty much tan with white high points. And, and it was amazing. I, I honestly thought they were just isolated to Australia, but they're not. I learned that too. That's why I love doing this podcast. They're not mm-hmm. though, right? No, 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 no. They're up into Thailand, you know, that and, and the Philippines and all through Indonesia and Malaysia. Yeah, it's a wide range. Just the sizes, Angie, maybe, you know, Rainbow, your dog about that size i mean she's 59 pounds when i last weighed her and she's about and she's 13 months okay so she's she's bigger than a dingo because Mm -hmm. females are you know obviously in in dogs females are a little bit smaller than males they can get up to up to 43 pounds or 19 kilograms where the males can get about 45 pounds or 20 kilograms and only about four feet long or 48 inches it's about 120 centimeters and then they have that that tail like like all canids, uh, 12 inch tail and only stand about 24 inches at the shoulder. So two feet. So they're not, they're not gray wolf size, but they're not coyote small size. Right. No, that's a good, uh, good visual. They're somewhere almost in the middle, but they are just a good looking canid. I mean, I'm a big fan of my first dog, uh, that I rescued and adopted was a Siberian Husky. So I like that the, the, the ears forward and prick the triangle ears in front, just almost the, looks like the body of a wolf. And so the dingo was very attractive to me because it it has all those features, but not as much fur. And of course, this tan, generally this tan color. They're just a very sleek, sharp looking uh, canid in my opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then when you, you know, looking at the range in, in Australia, I mean, pretty much from east to west, the entire continent, mm-hmm. they're present. It's certain areas, obviously built up areas, probably, you know, near Perth, uh, again, where Chantel's at, down in Melbourne, uh, parts of uh, New South Wales, 
they're not there, but generally they're almost everywhere in Australia. I know. I Now I need to go see them. They're on my bucket list. I mean, Australia has been on my bucket list for a long time, but wow. Well, I, next we, year, I, need to, I need to know if our friends down under have seen them. Yes. Next year, next year when uh, Pip will be down here and then you and John and the boys, and then we'll hop on over to Australia and we'll just do like a, a tour, an all creatures podcast tour. We'll hit Perth. Yes. Everybody needs I, an Australian <laughs> sabbatical in their life. Yes, <laughs> I keep, yes. I keep trying to get John to get a sabbatical from work, and, but they don't, where he works, they don't really do that. Unfortunately. No, no, so, no. <laughs> would although apart. he just had a little baby sabbatical cause he stayed home with me when Maddox was born for a couple uh, months. So I'm very blessed to have that. Uh, but yeah, so no, we need to get down to Australia. We need it now. <laughs> I know that's why we need more Patreon supporters. <laughs> we can just do a, <laughs> a, live all yeah, a live all creatures tour uh, of all pay for our vacation in Australia. But no, I love it. Yeah, Pip and I plan on on being in Australia quite a bit um, when she you know when she gets down here because we'll explore all of New Zealand and then we've got that whole continent right next to us. Now, Angie, this was. One of the more interesting things I learned really thinking about uh, dingoes, you know, why care? Because it is tricky. You're going to find out that I, I think they can be argued as being an invasive species introduced by humans, but, but some argue they're their own species. You know, they, they, they could have been there for nearly 20,000 years. You know, the evidence doesn't quite support that, but it could, you know, some people think they might've been there that long, but the more you go down that hole and, and they've been there for, we know they, they've been there for thousands of years, you start to realize they are playing a critical, critical role in today, in 2021 in Australia's ecosystem, right? Oh, absolutely. They're one of the main mammalian carnivores in Australia. In fact, some would argue the primary. And they can compete with feral cats, other small animals, foxes for food sources. But because the dingo's larger uh, and maybe their hunting strategies, they usually have greater success at catching larger prey items such as the European rabbits and other pests in Australia. So they're good at their job. And research suggests that in certain areas, dingoes might actually help maintain populations of small mammals by keeping everything in checks and balances, right? It's this whole food web of too much of something is bad, 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 and too little is also not good. And because they've been there for three to 5,000 years or maybe longer, they've really, really uh, fulfilled that role and they basically prevent breakouts from opportunistic species like cats and mm. rabbits and things like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's it, it's really interesting because certain species they believe dingoes have been responsible for reducing severely, like medium size Australian animals, mammals. Uh, I think I said some certain types of kangaroos, uh, the smaller roos bandicoots, things like that, that dingoes prey upon. So they, they have had some sort of a negative impact on the environment. But really what I see the fight for dingoes in Australia today is they are keeping in check a lot of invasive species, like especially 
European rabbits. That's the big mm-hmm. one I keep seeing mm-hmm. popping up. That European rabbits have been introduced. We know rabbits breed like crazy. They're everywhere. And dingoes have been very important in keeping those populations in check. And if we step aside from the ecosystem role of dingoes, there's actually a really cool cultural role that they've played for the three to 5,000 years that they've been there with the Aboriginal people. In pretty much the minute the dingo landed there on the continent, it's become a huge part of the Aboriginal stories, life, and cultures. And it's not believed that the Aboriginal people domesticated dingoes at all, but just in the way that they would hunt and gather a lot of times dingoes would be by them by their sides probably getting cleaning up messes or eating scraps and the phrase that was, we've used frequently called the three dog night was actually attributed to aboriginals as a way of describing how cold it was out mm. So, mm -hmm, yeah, it's like going to be really cold out. And so I don't know if that, I don't know exactly where it comes from. Like, what, like three dogs will be out howling, or maybe, I don't know, we need to snuggle with them. (laughs) (laughs) Snuggle with them, yeah. (laughs) But there's no evidence of um, Aboriginals doing any like selective breeding with dingoes or anything like that, um, or quote unquote domestication, but just a huge part of their culture and way of life in the bush. And also the dingo just being such a prominent and iconic, beautiful creature in Australia, uh, they play a prominent role in just Australian culture as far as dreamtime stories for children um, and just just almost pop culture, if you will. No, I mean they just are. They, they they're very iconic. It's it's just unfortunate, Angie, because there is a lot of conflict, especially with ranchers, like we see with gray wolves. Well, yes, Chris, as I was reading more and more and more about the dingo, I was just, it it was just tit for tat, very similar to our conflict here in the United States with wolves, uh, as far as a lot of people loving them and wanting them to be on the uh, protected list and um, not being able to hunt them and things like that. But then other, other people, primarily ranchers and landowners, being like, no, no, let's get rid of these wolves. They're they're attacking my livestock. But just to jump ahead a little bit, similar to wolves in the United States, yes, dingoes do attack livestock, sometimes sheep and cattle. However, there's estimates in the research that it's maybe 4% of their diet, maybe 7 uh, But this conflict goes back a long, long time in Australia. And Chris, in the 1940s, the Australians started building various structures or fences to create one long, crazy, gigantic fence, continuous, that stretched um, 8,600 kilometers or over 5,000 miles long. Are you kidding me? It's like the, the Great Wall of Australia? <laughs> yes, it's, it the, it's the longest fence in the world that, that, oh uh, to, that we know of, uh, to my knowledge. Well, yeah, Chris, and it was, I guess, originally it started in the 1800s to keep rabbits out or something, but they decided to fix it up and use it more for dingoes. And this is in southeastern Australia, which is known uh, for its sheep industry. It's a very, very large sheep industry. So they just kept building it and building it and lengthening it. And it's a million, I think it's up to like $10 million project. Uh, 
but it's been in areas where it's still working and going and stuff like that. It's been considered pretty successful at keeping predators out. So I, I do think it's an interesting solution that obviously we haven't tried anything like that here in the States to my knowledge. <laughs> we'll keep out of those politics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's, it's those fences. It'd be interesting to look at the ecological impact. Cause yeah, keeping out rabbits and dingoes, but what about all the other species that need to, to get around? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. It's very interesting. And so I'm sure there's people on pros and cons side of the fence. <laughs> get it? There you go. There you go. Your puns. But I also learned that several Australian farmers actually keep donkeys mm-hmm. as guard donkeys to protect their stock. So I thought that was a very clever way, another resourceful way without having to, because there is a history of using poisons and other things to help uh, control dingo populations, or maybe not even control the populations, just eliminate them. No, uh, yeah, it, it is a big issue, and we'll talk when we get to diet. You know, some of the data that I found on study about you know what they eat, and you know, there's this big misnomer that they eat a lot of cattle. They go after cattle and sheep, and it's very rare. You know, from what very I very rare. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not. It's not that common. So. Now I want to switch gears a, a little bit, Angie, just because I did a little digging and and it's good news for Australia. Yay, you know, let's hear it. Well, the last time, you know, we we talked a lot about them and and we had the big horrific fires. You and I did that special episode. We both were in tears thinking about just the devastation, you know, not only the human toll and cost, but you know, the animals. It was just a really, really bad year. And then obviously the COVID pandemic kind of pushed that out of people's memories. But every time we go to Australia, I always want to see how some of the species are doing. Kangaroo Island, a lot of positive news coming out of there. People have been pouring money in there to help rehabilitate that environment for those animals there. But being that we've been talking about climate change and that's why we're seeing a lot of effects on Australia, but there's some good news. So that's what I, I kind of wanted to bring today because I, I just don't always want to be negative. I want to look for the light. And, and there is. There is light. So this one has to do uh, with the Southern Hemisphere. So this affects me, you know, and my kids and, and Pip when she gets here, like our lives here in New Zealand. And if, because the weather systems down here is the Southern Annular Mode. And what that is, is is the belt of winds along the Southern Ocean. So everybody kind of understands or or should be aware that we were depleting the ozone layer. It was big in the 80s and 90s. A lot of chemicals that humans were giving off was destroying the ozone layer and it had a big effects on the poles. Now, I know I'm not a climate scientist, but it, but I kind of understand some of this. So I hope I can explain this about how ozone depletion affects the southern annular mode. So I'll just call it SAM. So the SAM is off southern Australia and then also affects New Zealand and probably South America too. And down here, they call them like the roaring 40s or the furious 50s because they're very strong winds. And they have big impacts on rainfall in Southern Australia, New Zealand, and South America. So when it's normal, 
this this belt of winds in winter it gets pushed these winds get pushed a little bit further north and that brings rain and snow to south australia and new zealand during the summer it normally shifts south and so all that rain will miss australia and parts of new zealand so that's how it normally operates well with the poles and ozone depletion what happened was that sam or southern annular mode got pulled south so the winds were always missing southern australia and they were not getting the rainfall and so they were going through these severe droughts which then leads to these severe fires and has a dramatic effect on the people there so the good news is the ozone because of actions taken across the world to reduce ozone depleting chemicals the ozone layer is healing it's getting better and so this sam is now shifting back to its normal position to where australia should be getting normal rainfall so climate scientists are very excited about this and the only reason i bring this up is because when there's action taken across the planet to combat ozone depletion and now climate change, we can reverse these trends and hopefully reverse them more quickly than some of the predictions are out there. You know, if we do this, do this, do this. So when we talk climate change on this podcast, it really, I know the news isn't always that great, but hopefully this gives you some, hopefully it inspires you a little bit, not just to take your own action, you know, be political, things like that, but, but it gives you a good feeling that yes, you know, yeah, sometimes the news is dire, especially the, oh my God, the news around the world these past two years has just been the worst I've ever, I've ever seen. It's just, it's horror. It's just horror. It's horror, and, you know, with COVID and then climate change and this and that and the other. So I will keep looking and searching for feel-good stories about climate change, what people are doing. Um, there's a lot of climate change heroes out there. There's a lot of people doing a lot of good work. I'm very optimistic that we're going to make the change this decade. We are going to start improving. I, I, I feel the momentum building since we've started this podcast. And this is just another feather in the cap of, see, when we come together, we can make positive change and heal the planet. So anyways, hopefully that made sense, but it's good news for Australia. Yes, we love good news and we got to keep fighting the good fight. It takes a village. It takes working together. It takes everybody's talents, not just necessarily being a, a conservationist out in the field or a scientist in the lab. It takes, it's going to take a lot more than that. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it, keep fighting the good fight. Keep voting with your dollar. Yeah. Get involved in local politics uh, and state politics, uh, federal politics. Yes, all of it. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good to read that stuff, and you know, it's good news for Australia that you know, hopefully, the, these dramatic droughts that they've been going through, the really hor- horrific ones, uh, days are behind them a little bit. And obviously, they're like, well, there's other things with climate change going on that we're worried about, but at least this is some good news. And like Angie said, when, when we all come together and there's political will, 
Uh, we, we, we make great things happen. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So jumping into evolution really quick, some of the stuff I, I just want to brush over because I really want to get into like the real history. But dingoes are carnivores, you know, again, 280 species in the order carnivora. The family's Canidae, so we know that. Dogs, you know, 34 species, dogs, wolves, coyotes, foxes, jackals, and dingoes. They are, the genus is Canis. So there's six recognized species in new and old world canids. So you have the side-striped jackal, the golden jackal, the black-backed jackal, the gray wolf, Ethiopian wolf, and the coyote. So I don't see dingoes in there, and I don't see domestic dogs in there because they're not recognized as their own species. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Crazy. Because, okay, domestic dogs are wolves. We've, we've talked about that before, but I'll re- reiterate it here. So they are Canis lupus is, is the wolf species name. Domestic dogs is Canis lupus familiaris, familiaris, so that's domestic dogs. Dingoes is Canis lupus dingo. Now, some people are arguing they're their own species, and we'll get there. We'll get there. So basically, gray wolves, red wolves, you know, the wolf family led to domestic dogs and dingoes. Okay. So that's most authorities. Now, some are arguing that they should be their own species. And, and you kind of opened up a little bit about that with with their with the IUCN and stuff. And it's controversial because if dingoes are recognized as their own species, they will get special protections in Australia where they don't have them today, where they just consider them a feral dog. So they receive less protection. Right. So, yeah, because if, 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 you know, that way... Uh, sheep ranchers and everything they can shoot dingoes they don't they, they have less protection if they're their own species then they they get all of a sudden they get uh, their own protection so there was a study out there arguing that dingoes are their own species and they were looking at skull shapes hair samples physiology and say no this is a unique canid it should be its own species but <laughs> but what we can do is go and look at genetics. So I'm going to get there in a second. And, and what, what does genetics tell us? Because genetics is painting, as we know in this podcast, a truer picture of these evolutionary trees. Now, just kind of building up to dingoes, their history. So the myocids we know go way back. That's the origination of carnivores, North America, 35 million years ago. So we know canids about 8 million years ago moved to Asia via the the Bering Strait. So we know they came from North America. Now, dingoes are thought to have arrived in Australia as far back as 18,000 years ago, up to 
4,000 years ago. You're right. And where is the discrepancy with that? It's it's hard because we know the Aborigines came to Australia, you know, over 20,000 years ago. So they're assuming they brought dingoes in with them. And there are a lot of competing theories. So the best evidence we have, Angie, and, and, and I think... I, I couldn't find any evidence for 18,000 years ago. All the evidence I saw was pointing to about 3,500, 4,000 years ago. Because the earliest fossil we have of a dingo is about 3,500 years old. Also, there have been no dingo fossils found in Tasmania. Oh, okay. Which separated from the Australian mainland about 11, 12,000 years ago as oceans, as sea level rose that straight where animals were crossing. We did this with the Tassie tiger or Tassie tiger, Tasmanian devil, <laughs> the Tassie tigers out there. I know it is. I'm going to find it. But the Tasmanian devil episode, we talked about how they got isolated on Tasmania. So 12,000 years ago, that, that bridge went away. So dingoes didn't get down there. And then the other argument is dingoes. There's no way dingoes could have swam to Australia because even when sea levels were at their lowest, it still was like a 50 kilometer journey, you know, with 20 miles over open ocean. And it, it's probably impossible that they made it even on maybe some, you know, like we know some animals made it on, on rafts of vegetation. I can't see a, a breeding pair of dingoes on something that might have landed in Australia, you know, so there isn't really any, any evidence that points to them being there okay. that long ago. Now, where dingoes came from. So looking at DNA studies, so there, there's two hypotheses. One is they came from India because the maritime people of India were exploring uh, the Southeastern Asia archipelago. So they were, they were traveling around. Some of those tools have been found in Australia with the Aborigines. So they're like, oh, they might've brought them in there. Or the other theory is they're from East Asia as, you know, not so much Polynesians, but as the peoples of that part of the world were going through all these islands, the dingoes probably originated there, like we see in the Philippines and Thailand and, and down. So to speed this up, because, again, this is the this is like the whole podcast for me is what I studied. I love <laughs> so it. No, I love it. So... How many, back, wait, wait, time out. How many slides do you have on this? At least 10. At least 10. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> well, that's, that's me with behavior. But uh, yeah, for, for me, I was like, oh, I have, like, I have one on evolution and one on taxonomy and, you know, uh, something all about right, pure right. dingoes that we'll get to here in a second. But <laughs> I'll bring it home. I'll bring it I home. I just love how home. we love like different things. It's cute. I know. I'll bring it home. I'll bring it home. Okay. So the study that really defines this is it's a detailed picture of the origin of the Australian dingo. Attained, obtained from the study of mitochondrial DNA. Now, what we oh, know yeah, about mitochondria... Oh, yeah, mDNA. Oh, we love it. It tells us so much. Mitochondrial DNA comes from mom. Doesn't mutate. It, it takes thousands of years to mutate. So it mutates very slowly, unlike genomic DNA. Not to get into the woods. That's very different. So mitochondrial DNA comes from mom, and we use it to, to look at evolution. Right? So when we look at the mitochondrial DNA from dingoes, 
wolves, domestic dogs, and then also dogs from Polynesia. So these are the dogs that traveled around with them. Uh, they did a comparison. And what they found, just to get to the, the, the punchline, is much of the, the dingo mitochondrial DNA matches to that of a domestic dog. And then also looking at the, the rate of mutation, the timeline places dingoes in Australia about 5,000 years ago. So the range they gave is 4,600 to 5,400 years ago. So, and there was another study that I, I read. It was looking at the paternal line. Also matches up with this study. That dingoes matched domestic dogs, came about 5,000 years ago. And both of them said the mitochondrial DNA matches, matches those domestic dogs from East Asia and not India. So that theory of them coming from India, no, doesn't work. Genetic okay. studies say, nope, they came from East Asia about 5,000 years ago is when they showed up on the Australian continent. Probably one breeding pair, maybe two breeding pair because they're, they're, they are inbred. There's, I don't know how true that is today, how inbred they are, but okay. there was a genetic bottleneck when they got there. Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, you have your dingoes. So they really are feral dogs. I mean... But, but they're technically not a breed of dog. They're not like a breed of dogs. No, they're not a breed of dogs. Right. They're they're a subspecies of wolf. Is really how you gotcha. can look at it. Okay. Domestic dogs are subspecies of wolves. Well, Chris and I was reading that the dingo is closely related to the New Guinea singing dog, which we need to cover. Yes. And the New Guinea Highland wild dog. That would make sense. That would make sense because that's their that's where they originated. And I'll just I'll leave it with this because the the authors of the study that are that are arguing dingoes are their own species, and they're basically stating and, and I'll quote uh, Dr. Bradley Smith, one of the authors, the lead author, and he says, "There's no historical evidence of domestication once the dingo arrived in Australia, and the degree of domestication prior to arrival is uncertain and likely to be low, certainly compared to modern domestic dogs." And then the other author, she said, uh, Professor Bradshaw, she said, we show that dingoes have sur survived in Australia for thousands of years, subjected to the rigors of natural selection, thriving in all sorts of habitats without any human aid or intervention. So she's like, without a doubt, this is a native Australian species. So while evolutionary speaking, they technically are feral dogs, quote unquote. Sure. There could mm -hmm. be an argument made that that they should be their own unique species. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Chris, I was reading too that the IUCN Red List had listed the dingo as vulnerable in 2008 because of a huge decline in numbers, around like 30% of a population decline of pure dingoes due mm -hmm. to crossbreeding with domestic dogs and other threats. But in 2018, the IUCN basically decided to re regard the dingo as a feral dog and take it off the red list. But they recognize the really important ecological role of these dogs as top predators and the environment and also the social cultural value. And so they definitely want people to still keep or they're supporting groups that are still working to conserve it and manage it and research it 
uh, so that we can learn more and, and they try to get funding to those groups because they do recognize the importance of the dingo. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, 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 especially today we, you know, here in New Zealand, thank you, Australia for sending all your invasive possums and magpies. I see them all the time, but, uh, yeah, it's a little tongue in cheek, but the Europeans, we have brought in so many problems and here you have a species that is maintaining, you know, or try trying to maintain the status quo. It's been there for thousands of years. So I can definitely see the arguments for conserving them and, and really, they're really unique. Now, just some facts. I mean, lifespans typical like other dogs, you know, or canids 10 to 15 years, even under human care. I did kind of look at this real quick is they can run about as top speeds, about 30 miles per hour or 50 kilometers per hour. Now, red kangaroos can run 40 miles per hour or 70 kilometers per hour can sustain probably, you know, that's a sprint, but they can sustain about 12 miles per hour or 20 kilometers per hour. Eastern gray kangaroos, a little bit less, 35 miles per hour, 60 kilometers per hour. So and, I was they, thinking can, like, and they can hop over that fence. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you look at what dingoes do, you know, when, when they hunt kangaroos, you know, I think it's, it's similar to almost the African painted dogs, you know, they, they, they can hunt in family groups or hunt in pairs, you know, trying to run down a kangaroo. It's gotta be tough though for them. Oh yeah. And when you look at predation, primarily dingoes are killed by humans, but also they have crocodiles that are after them and even jackals and domestic dogs. So rarely the pups can be taken by birds of prey. Um, but you know, they're not, even though they are a top predator, they definitely have a lot of predation, especially from the human side of things. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely challenging. I mean, you know, their physiology is very similar to other canids. They do, when they do eat, you know, they eat 7% of their body weight per day, which is about three pounds. It's like seven kilograms. I think if I do that right. And the diet, again, they, they will occasionally eat kangaroo or wallabies, but generally, you know, they go for birds or reptiles or smaller mammals. But when it comes to cattle and sheep, there was a study done that looked at over 400 dingo stomachs collected. And when they were looking at these dingoes, only 10 contained remains of sheep that weren't carrion. Okay. And then only six had remains food or meat from cattle, which they don't know if it was carrying or not. Sure. So so the majority was kangaroo, wombats, wallabies, and rabbits. I mean, they, they don't go after sheep very often. They don't go after cattle. Especially if you have a guard donkey. Yeah. Just saying. It's true. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. It's true. So while that is a concern for ranchers, it's not like dingoes are, are are out there harassing cattle and sheep all the time. No, it's such a misnomer. And it's very similar here in the U.S. with wolves. A very, very, very low percentage of uh, sheep and cattle are taken by wolves in the U.S. So there's, there, should be able, there should be able to be a workaround or maybe paying the farmers if there is loss of wildlife uh, due to predation from dingoes. Um, or just trying to prevent it altogether by using a guard donkey or some of these mm-hmm. other 
uh, non-invasive or non-lethal tactics. Right, right, right. And then just to wrap up nutrition, Angie, it's very similar to other canids. You know, they're not adapted to the desert. We know Australia can be very, very, very hot. So mm-hmm. in the summer, they drink, you know, 12% of their body weight per a day. Lot. Yeah, every day. A lot. Every day. That's that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And then in the winter, it drops to about 7%. So, so they do drink quite a lot. Absolutely. Now, the question I have... Do dingoes eat babies? I know you've been saying that's a movie. It's it's a famous case in Australia. Oh my goodness! Very yes, sad. Very heartbreaking. It yeah. is. This is the one of the rabbit holes I went down this week just out of sheer curiosity. Um, but yes, there's a, a very famous case, and all of our Australian listeners are I'm sure know about it. But for those non-Australia listeners, there's a very famous case in 1980 about a. a, a family that went, I think, camping out in the Australian outback near Ayers Rock. And the mother claimed the dingo took her child, I think from a tent uh, while they were camping. And it was nine week old. So really, really young child. And because the baby disappeared from the campsite. And so for a long time, because there wasn't really any evidence, uh, there was a lot of back and forth as to whether, well, is this true? Is this not true? Dingoes don't, dingoes don't really take babies. Uh, they're more scared of you than you are of them. Uh, and so the woman actually went to jail for over three years before, I believe before it was overturned because of lack of evidence, or maybe she did appeals or something. Uh, and yeah. And then a few years later, an an unfortunate accident happened where a gentleman was hiking and I think he uh, slipped and fell into a crevice and died. But then lo and behold, when the rescue uh, crew found the body of this poor gentleman that had passed, they actually found, I think a life jacket or a a piece of clothing that was from the baby that had been missing all these years and presumed to be dead. And it was right next to a dingo layer. Oh yeah. So it just was more evidence that uh, that really pointed to the fact that the mom and dad were innocent because I think the dad was even also charged with like assistance or something. Accessory, yeah. Accessory, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so just anyways, really back and forth, and it inspired a movie called A Cry in the Dark in 1988 starring Mar- Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, yeah, I can still see that movie. It's on Oh Netflix my goodness. Right now. And, yeah. then, and then in typical pop culture fashion – the story has been told and retold several times again on other podcasts. So I suppose if you're interested in learning more about this this pretty famous case from Australia, there's actual podcasts about it, uh, probably with much more detail than I'm doing. But the point is, uh, is do dingoes attack humans? And the general answer is no. Uh they very, very rarely, um, there's this incident that still is not 100% proven. And there's a few other incidents um, that have been reported, one more recently, but uh, where they'll, where Dingo attacked like a toddler at a campsite, but uh, the dad or parent was able to like scare it off and, and the uh, child was fine. Um, I believe there was one fatality reported, but it was, I don't think it was a child. I think it was somebody older. So it does happen. It's pretty rare. And a couple of the incidents have been reported on Fraser Island, 
which is a world heritage site off Australia's eastern coast. And there's uh, an estimated number of about 120 dingoes there. But this population is really important because they are considered like pure dingoes. They have uh, very little um, hybridization of dogs in, in their DNA. They're considered one of the more pure forms of dingoes, as are some that live in the Tanami Desert. So, but because of this, people go there to look at the dingoes and probably typical tourist fashion or whatever maybe aren't the best. And oh. yeah, maybe. Look at, yeah. look at Yellowstone. People take pictures right. of grizzly bears with cubs. Like they walk out of their cars. I'm like, what are you doing? Right. So there's yeah. probably, there's some, you know, maybe incidents with that, but they don't lead to death very, very, very rarely. Yeah. yeah. No, I just, yeah, people. Uh, well, it, and I just want to say, you know, dogs are, I think, number four on the all time list of world's deadliest animals towards humans. You know, where 25,000 up to 30, 40,000 people a year around the world are killed by dogs. So it's just, you know, it would make sense that every now and then a dingo might get in a little bit of trouble. Exactly, Chris. I mean, I think in general, they're probably more scared of you than you are of them. But and and similar to the human cattle sheep dingo conflict is if they have plenty of natural food sources they're not coming for your sheep and cattle or your baby. No. Uh, but yes, if you're leaving out a lot of garbage and attracting them or trying to get close to them, and, and that's probably not teaching them the best things. And if if we don't have a balanced ecosystem that is full of these smaller mammals and rodents for them to hunt and prey on, then that's also going to be a problem and it is going to drive them to seek out other foods because what – Dingoes have shown over these thousands of years that they've been in Australia is that they have a lot of adaptations. They can live anywhere in Australia. They do well. Um, and so, you know, they, they are going to, they're going to figure out how to stay there. Kind of like the wolves, as long as people don't completely wipe them out. Uh, they're hopefully here for a long time. Yeah. And it's just, you know, to, to kind of wrap that all up. I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're not out there to go after people. It's rare. hundred percent. No, exactly. No. And then when Pippa was at the Corumban wildlife sanctuary, uh, I think it was in Queensland and she did a animal encounter with the dingoes. And so they told her, they're like, go in there, sit down. We'll let the dingoes out and just don't touch them. Don't reach for them. Things like that. And they'll just go around and sniff and you can just watch them. Right. Well, she does that. She goes in there and I don't remember the name of the, the particular dingo, but went beeline straight towards her tail wagging and he just started licking her face. And the keeper was like, oh my God, I've never seen that before in my life. Like, and Pip said like his, the, the breath was just awful. It smelled like carrion. It was so terrible, but she has a cute picture of the dingo licking her face and Again, just because she just has such good energy, animals trust her. I've seen all sorts of animals like just flock to her, birds, everything. It's like uh, Snow White. But it just goes to show you that these animals aren't like bloodthirsty, you know, wolves, all these bad things you hear about canids. It's just not true. It's just not true. Exactly. No, they, uh, once again, they're, they're more afraid of you than you are of them. So what other cool behaviors do these animals show? 
What don't they? I mean, they're a canid species. I, like I said, I have a whole bunch of papers to read tonight after this podcast is over because, yes, I am that big a dork. But, Chris, I think most people can probably relate to just their behavioral patterns and expressions and movements just because of our furry friends that live with us, the domestic version of the dog. So there's going to be a lot of similarities with facial expressions and using uh, using their body language to communicate with each other on what they're feeling and what their rank is. Um, but what I found really interesting is they is some of their adaptations for the outback. And one of the first ones is that they have an amazing sense of vision, almost like owls. They can swivel their heads and turn them about 180 degrees. Now an owl can do 270 degrees. So there's that, but like us humans, if you, if everyone looks like left or right, right now, unless you're driving, uh, keep your eyes on the road, but we can only turn our heads about 45 to 70 degrees. So a dingo can go 180 degrees. And that once again is going to help them be able to see their prey animal and hunt anything that moves. Right. And now when it comes to hunting, Dingoes also have this adaptation of very bendable or flexible wrists, similar to us humans, although their wrist is in a little bit different location of how their, uh, uh, how their anatomy is. But this flexible ability to rotate their wrists helps them catch their prey, uh, helps them climb trees, for lack of better terms, um, and then even do things like open doors if they're living under human care and stuff like that. So it Wait, does make them. What? Are you sure that's not the clouded leopard slides? <laughs> I know. That's what I said. <laughs> it's like, I was like, what? well, they, they cannot, ha- they cannot walk down a tree. Down, down a tree. Uh, okay. They, and, and then we're not talking like a huge, uh, there's not that big a tree in, yeah. in the outbook and the outback. Yeah. Good. But no, but they can, you know, they can, they can get around in there. And that's the yeah. thing is we think of them like in the outback, but they also live in Asia too, right? Southeastern yeah, Asia. True. So true, true, true. they, you know, they're very, very good at hunting and being able to adapt and having these flexible uh, wrist-like structures allow them to do that. Uh, That's crazy. That's crazy. I know. I love them so much. But like our, well, I guess it depends on what type of dog you have. I have a very social dog. I know some people don't. uh, But similar to primitive dogs, uh, they are typically pretty social creatures. And so when they're young, they might live solitary for a while when it's not breeding season. But typically, once it becomes breeding season, they're going to form really close bonds and they're going to hunt large prey together and they're going to form stable packs of anywhere from three to 12 individuals. So pretty small packs. Uh, and they're going to be highly social and have a lot of fun behavior to watch. This makes me want to like uh, just want, want to go watch dingo behavior out in the wild so bad because there is just such a unique and awesome social dynamic between dingoes that are in the same pack. And in general too, research shows that they don't really interact too often with other packs. Uh, even if they are competing for resources and things like this, they, they still, they, 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 they know to stay away, right. For the most part. Uh, And in a pack, it's pretty much going to be a dominant male and female that's the breeding pair. 
uh, with their their young from the previous season, so their offspring from the previous season, and then their pups. Uh, and so, in general, males are a little bit dominant over females. However, they do work together to like take care of the young, and then the lower ranking individuals are gonna kind of constantly be play fighting to learn more about their ranks and where they stand. But then also as they get older, uh, starting to display more aggressive signs and, and, or testing the waters to see if they're going to become the top dog, if you will, for lack of lack of better terminology. So to lots of fun social behaviors to watch when they interact with each other. There's submissive behavior. There's a, a very affiliative behavior. And then of course, some aggression too, depending on um, once again, how, how much the younger ones are challenging each other. Now we opened up with the, the howl, you know, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I know it's domestic dogs do too, but that makes me think like, Oh, maybe they're a little bit more wolf than we give them credit to, but they, they do. So what other vocalizations they might make. Right, Chris. So, so dingoes don't bark typically the way that we would think of our, our friend, furry friends at home barking. They have more of that yodel like howl. Uh, and so they growl and they will, they will also make almost like a, it's almost like a bark, but it's much more muted. Uh, I almost want to say like a chuff, but that's, that's of course, if we're t- talking about tigers, but <laughs> no, they do no, make, no chuffing, yeah. Yeah, they they do make other vocalizations besides howling. Um, and some some people that work with them swear that they bark. It's just much more muted and not a typical bark. So that might be classified more as a whimper or a growl or something like that. So uh, they're very animated, though. I mean, they have they, their their facial expressions that they make to help communicate to the other dingoes are very very dynamic. The position that they hold their tail in, the position that they hold their neck, the position that they hold their their body in tells a story of how the dingo is feeling. And I love all this stuff because I'm very, very into dog behavior uh, and watching dogs interact and watching my own dog. And so I have to presume it's it's very similar to that with the dingo and with dingo packs, which just makes them even more exciting for me to want to learn more about dingoes. I can't wait to see them and I'm going to be sending you pictures, you know, and then I can't wait to go to Africa one day and see a leopard and take a picture and send it to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I hope me. you do. You're <laughs> such a dear friend that I, I want that for you. And then I want to know exactly where it was so I can come and hopefully get that picture too. Like, uh, but also probably not too yeah. shocking to people that are familiar with the, the canids is that Dingoes are smart, right? Uh, like wolves, uh, they're very, very good predators. They're very adaptable. They can solve lots of problems. They can hunt solo. They can hunt well in groups. So just really, really smart, smart creatures. Um, but there have been studies into their intelligence and communications with humans. And there's evidence to suggest that Dingoes can understand humans a little bit more or in a different way than wolves do. So I think we've probably talked about some of the studies uh, when we covered wolves versus dogs and how their, their memory, their recall, all these things are really, really good. But when it comes to using human cues, wolves, even if they were raised by human researchers, uh, suck at it for the most part. For, for lack of better words, uh, where a dog 
really understands a lot of what the human's saying. And a lot of it's like in the body language. So where the hum- if, if a human stares in a certain direction, a dog will definitely take its gaze there and maybe even check that out. So they're domesticated dogs have been looking to humans for our cues to basically rule. They, I think dogs rule us now. <laughs> I mean, if you're in the United States, if you've been in a pet smart recently, mm-hmm. it's like, I think the dogs are winning. I think, yeah. I think they're training us a hundred percent, but dingoes, they don't do this quite as good as dogs, but they do it much better than wolves. So, which makes sense if we kind of go back to their DNA and their their their, their uh, where they're where they're located on the phylogenetic tree, as far as being, like you said, a little bit more closer to dogs than they are to wolves. Um, one researcher said it's almost like dingoes are like primitive dogs, like frozen in time. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good. That's I thought a good, that was a way great to way to describe it. it. However. I don't think it's my opinion, uh, and since it's our podcast, I can yes, once in a while absolutely. say my opinion, but yeah. uh, I don't think that dingoes probably make the best pets. Uh, no, some no. people do have them for pets, similar here in the United States. People will have wolves or um, wolf hybrids as as dogs, or as, sorry, as pets at home. And I just don't think it's the best idea, especially... I'm sure it's similar in Australia. There are so many domestic dogs that need good homes uh, that I don't know why you'd want a wild animal as a pet. Uh, Terrible idea. And they need a lot of mental stimulation and a ton of attention. They don't like change. And so in a lot of places like South Wales and Western Australia, it is legal to own a dingo without a permit. However, in other places like Northern Territory, Queensland, South Australia, it's completely illegal to own them. So it depends on which region you're in. But in general, my opinion, once again, is it's pr- just the little bit that I've been studying them, them this week and understanding their behaviors is I don't think it's probably a good idea. No, no it takes... Was it 30 to 40 generations to breed out and select for domesticated genes going back to that silver fox study in Russia? So taking a a wild animal and, and trying to keep it as a pet is just an awful, awful, awful idea. Terrible idea. It can lead to uh, horror stories, you know, and, and it's not fair to the animal and it's probably not fair to you as an owner. So I'm, I agree with you uh, that I, 100%, 100%. Now, breeding, probably very similar to our other canids, right? And the wolves. Yes and no. This is fascinating. Uh, Different than domestic dogs, dingo um, breeding and reproduction is restricted to one litter per pack per year. And it's, they're going to be born to the alpha male and female. So those are the only ones in the, within the pack. Those are the only ones that breed. And in fact, if a, another female, a more submissive or lower ranking female is bred by the male and um, does end up having a litter, um, the dominant female will uh, go after those pups and usually kill most of them. So that typically doesn't happen. So that's how I guess she keeps her alpha ranking. Um, not very nice, but once again, they're wild animals, right? Uh, and so their breeding and mating season is going to de- 
vary depending on are you in Southern Australia or Southeastern Asia. But in general, uh, in Australia, dingoes are going to mate from March to April. And then in Southeast Asia, it's going to be August to September. But the really cool thing about uh, breeding pairs of dingoes is that they typically mate for life. So that's very, I, th- I just love that when that happens. I know, and, I know. Uh, and as a pack, they do all help each other out. So when there are pups, uh, they're all going to kind of chip in to help take care of the young, and which is nice, and that's going to increase their survival. And when the female dingo does become pregnant, her gestation period is pretty short. It's like a little over 60 days. And the litter size can vary, probably depending on nutrition, nutritional status, and then also age of the female. It's going to range between 1 and 10 individuals. So somewhat similar to probably our domestic dogs, right? There can be very different sizes of litters, uh, depending on the genetics and the age of the female. And once these cute little dingo pups are born, they're going to stay in the den for the first couple weeks. And usually by, by about two months, they will leave the den where they are born and basically start learning a little bit more about hunting and following around, um, their parents And usually after two months, the pups will start to come out of their den full time, pretty much abandon it and start hanging out with the adults, learning how to hunt um, and traveling with the adults uh, further and further away from their their natal den. Pups are going to be really independent around three to four months. But I also think it's important to give a shout out to both mom and dad dingo because they both hunt and will feed the pups. And so in typical canid fashion, they'll regurgitate their food to, uh, to help feed the pups. And the mother will typically also water the pups by regurgitating that as well. And around three to four months, they'll become independent and uh, pups will reach sexual maturity around a little shy of two years. And then that's when they'll go off and hopefully form, maybe be solitary for a little while and then hopefully form their own pack. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, these in the wild live 10 years, you know, probably 10, 11 years. And then, so got to reproduce quickly to stay alive. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's only the numbers are anywhere from 10 to 50,000 total dingoes in Australia. So that's not a lot. That's a huge, huge country. Massive. It's massive. So, you know, there's probably, what, 50,000 dogs just in uh, Alachua County there where you live. I don't know if that many, but a lot, you know. Oh, no, that sounds that sounds about right. It's, yeah. yeah, there's probably a in lot Florida. of dogs around here. Yeah, yeah where you are in Florida. Now, we do know around built-up areas in Australia near the major hubs, dingoes are losing their genetic diversity, you know, being persecuted a little bit, you know, kept out of there. Again, demonized like we talked about. So they were threatened at one point with IUCN, but mm-hmm. I guess the genetic studies not showing them to be a real distinct species, you know, IUCN probably doesn't have the resources and stuff to to really focus on them. So it makes sense. But, but there are organizations out there fighting for them, right? Oh, absolutely. And these are organizations typically too that IUCN supports because they definitely believe in their conservation and their importance uh, in their ecological role. Uh, So I want to give a big shout out today to the Australian Dingo Foundation. They can be found at dingofoundation.org. And they're a nonprofit group that's basically been established to help research and conserve 
the dingo. Uh, they have a sanctuary and they do a lot of education to the public uh, and large groups about why we should care about dingoes and why we should protect them and do research to basically help keep them around and keep uh, keep their genetics uh, pure and reduce hybridization and yeah, keep their numbers up. So they have a, a nice uh, presence on Facebook and their website at dingofoundation.org is really, really informative and it's fun to look around and they show you different, different places to see dingoes and a lot of education facts and of course, ways that you can support their organization and support dingoes in general. So once again, check out the Australian Dingo Foundation and we'll put their information on our show notes as well. It, thank you for fighting for the dingoes, everybody out down under, down under. I keep saying that when it's right next door to me. I so know it's, it's I, a hard, I mean, for years <laughs> they were down under for you. They were, they were. Now they're no, your neighbor, which is awesome. I know I'm all, I'm, I'm actually further South where I am in New Zealand than most of Australia. So I'm, I'm more under than you guys are, but thank you to all of our fans in Australia. We love you. Thank you for reaching out to us. You know, I will be over there soon. I will get Angie over there soon and we'll travel around. I promise you one day together, both our families and meet with everybody there. But uh, be there soon. You know, cheers from New Zealand. But great episode, Angie. Oh, thank you, Chris. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And yes, I hope you fell in love with the dingo the way that I did this week. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.